the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host. She is the executive director at the WellMed Charitable Foundation, serves as the board chair for the National Council on Aging, graduate of Trinity University, and a well-known gerontologist. That's wow, cool. This is your life right here this on, is your on radio. Life. And out of these curtains come your whole life. <laughs> That's what it feels like every time you do that. Well, we're going to have a neat guest on who is an expert at designing for aging societies. In fact, he invented uh, a new kind of commode. Which, you know, the whole, this idea of design, better design. For older making, people. Well, making a better mousetrap, but, um, you know, he he's thinking about dignity, and he's going to talk about that dignity in design, which Glenn is Hogan, really cool. Up in Nova Scotia, we'll talk to him in just a little bit, and uh, has really uh, pioneered taking a look at things and going into homes and looking at how older people truly live and adapt themselves and then bringing that to market. That's right. And and probably if you went to any of our homes, you would find that we have adapted something in our house beyond its original purpose. Correct. He calls it hacking. Hacking. I yes. like that. Yes. He'll be up first, but guess what? You were on a field trip to Chicago. I was on a field trip. I just came back from the Aging in America conference, which is was in Chicago this year. It's the conference for the American Society on Aging, and they had... Almost 3,000 participants this year. Um, it's the largest aging conference of the year. And uh, as America continues to age, uh, it certainly adds uh, interest in that whole field. So 20 years ago, maybe 15 people went. Well, it may, yes, yes, and, yeah. and now 3,000. So uh, for the WellMed Charitable Foundation, um, a few weeks ago we had Lucy Berrylack on the show who – is from Canada. You know, we, we, we know we love our Canadian neighbors. Um, <laughs> so she's also from Canada. And we kind of launched this exploration of caregiving as a human rights issue here in the United States. We sponsored a session um, at the conference and talked to some very interesting people. There were several participants in the audience that had done work at the United Nations level on human rights and caregiving. And what's the issue? Well, you know, the issue is, you know, here in the United States, uh, probably a lot of caregivers have seen a caregiver bill of rights. And we think of caregivers' rights. But if you read it, that really is sort of the right to live your own, live an individual life, uh, the right to get mad, the right to have your own space, uh, the right to be in the know, you know, in, in terms of health care. But all that does is help you take better care of your loved one. It's related more to your emotions and being part of the team. Whereas human rights, this goes back to the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights passed by the United Nations in 1948. Uh, and it says that we have, a, as human beings, we have the right to work. And caregivers often lose that right through no fault of their own because, A, they, you know, they have to provide the care. They can't afford uh, to pay for care. They, you know, their jobs aren't flexible enough to let them hold on to work. Caregiving can last five, ten years or longer. How do you hold on to a job and keep taking off, keep taking off, keep taking off for ten years? Um, so they, they lose the right to work, the right to leisure, and I bet everyone listening right now is thinking, wow, I would like to have more free time, more leisure time to pursue, you know, the things that make me, me exactly. and, and rest. Because when caregivers, even when they're not caregiving, 
our little lines are going, you know, planning doctor's appointments, sequencing, we're going to have to do this and this and this. And there's so much psychic energy that goes into caregiving. We really don't have enough downtime. So the right to leisure. Um, and then the last one that we spend a lot of time talking about is the, is the right to adequate income to support you and your family. And so what we're talking about is what do you give up when you become a caregiver? So if you quit your job, you're giving up on average $303,000 in lost wages and retirement income. It's a lot of money. Which is a lot of money. Um, and every month, caregivers spend, you know, sometimes up to 60% of their own income out of their own pockets providing care. The average amount is like $5,000. can go up to $10,000, $20,000. So, because there's no reimbursement. There's no reimbursement. It's all 100% private pay or public pay. You have to spend down into poverty. So in the process of caring for your loved one, you jeopardize your own income right now, which means your family gives up something, and you've jeopardized your income in retirement, which, if you're a woman, makes you five times more likely to live in poverty and to need um, supplemental security income. You immediately lowered what you'll get in Social Security. You've lowered everything. And so we're asking the question that we need, we need a new lens that when we talk about policy, we talk about caregiving, we have to say, are we supporting human rights? And, and when we say human rights, I think in the United States, we tend to think of developing countries. Right. You know, this is something that is a violation. Amnesty International tra- tracks human rights violations in third other world co- nations, third world countries. Um, and we don't think about that right now here in this country, we might be depriving people who are caregivers of the right to work the right to leisure, and the right to adequate income. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel, and we will be talking in just a couple of moments with Glenn Hogan. Uh, He is up in Nova Scotia, Canada, an expert on designing for seniors trying to add dignity and quality and purpose to all the things that are part of our lives. He also has designed for hospital settings at the Mayo Clinic and elsewhere, and we will talk about that uh, as well, talking with Carol Zerniel about the challenges of uh, what it is like in a society uh, for caregivers and where we develop those human rights. That's right. And just um, uh, like the week of the conference, uh, Paula Spann, who we've had on the show from the New York Times, had a, an article called Pressed into Caregiving Sooner Than Expected. And the word pressed into caregiving, you feel that coercion that somebody felt like they didn't have a choice. Well, we hear that all the time. Well, and it's, I mean, that's the reality is we, we don't have long-term care in this country or long-term services and supports. There's, there's, no, there's no universal health care, which means that we age poorly because we haven't had health care until we're eligible for Medicare. That increases the need for caregiving. And then we don't have a long-term care system. There's no support for families. And this article was about people who are in their 20s and 30s who are suddenly caring for a parent, an older person, and they thought they had more time, um, and they're giving up another uh, human right, which is the right to education. You know, if you're in your 20s, um, you, 18 to 24, those are college years, uh, and you may be giving up your right to an education because you have to be a caregiver. When we interviewed Rundy Purdy, who wrote about caring for his granddad, uh, he was a youngster when he began that process. That's right. He was only 19. Um, and so, you know, the younger caregivers have a different set of issues. They're kind of out of sync with other people in their same age group. Uh, their friends are worried about, you know, buying a house and or the, the next beer. Or the next problem with, you know, this pillow doesn't mind need to decorate and it's not working. Um, you know, and they just feel out of sync and you keep turning down offers to go places and do things. Pretty soon, people stop asking. Right. Uh, and then that can make you socially isolated. And you certainly don't think about socially isolated young people uh, because they're caregivers. Now, who are the people at this American Society on Aging conference? Well, this is a conference for professionals. So most of these people um, are sort of in the aging business, but a wide variety of fields. So they're, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to um, our guest yet and find out if he was there, but it's it's highly likely um, that he was there because, uh, you know, he's written for the American Society on Aging, Glenn. Uh, so, you know, there's there's design people, there's gerontologists, there's 
um, Area Agency on Aging Government Types, a lot of nonprofits. And, of course, we were all there talking about how effective services are comparing to the budget that's being proposed right now. And, yes, Meals on Wheels do work. They are effective. They are actually pretty cost-effective, too, compared to a nursing home. Well, don't get me started on that, but uh, it's an example of uh, ignorance driven by people with number two pencils. Well, and and we were saying that so many people that don't understand uh, what it's like to be an elderly. I mean, as an Area Agency on Aging director, when I worked in an agency, I would go at least once a year on a Meals on Wheels ride-along. I'd ride along in the truck and meet the people who were getting these meals. And I can remember a gentleman in a mobile home that lived on the outskirts of San Antonio. And he looked like, a. speaking of pencils, he looked like a pencil. He was so thin. He had cancer, very weak, um, couldn't drive anymore. And he asked if he could have two lunches. You know, this was somebody who didn't have any other way to get food. And I is, you know, I'm not working there anymore, so if you want to arrest me, go ahead. The driver knew it was against the rules to give somebody two lunches. And I said, he wants two lunches. I think I'm busy over here across the road somewhere (laughs) not paying any attention to what's going on, which was, of course, my way of saying, please give him two lunches. Um, You know, And, And, of course, under that program, technically, there's no food for the weekend. Well, no, no. And so you get so, so some, people, some of them get frozen meals for the weekend. It some depends do. on the delivery system. Um, but it, you <laughs> know, there are only, there are a lot of people that rely on meals and wheels. Right. It's their only source of um, meal prep, meal at all. You know, other than just and, groceries they and human cook. contact and human contact as well. So there was a we you know we were feeling. Uh, very concerned about the lack of concern, the total lack of concern for a seniors who are struggling, low income, and families who are trying to care for someone. Uh, you know, we rely on these services. When for my mother who had Alzheimer's, I relied on Meals on Wheels for her and my father because she couldn't cook anymore. Right. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's reality. So I just, you know, that's probably more political than we usually get on the radio show. But I think, you know, we have to be uh, listening and actively involved in what's being discussed on the national level and the state level. Because these policies or lack of policies, you know, someone just took $300,000 out of your bank account because you had to quit your job to be a caregiver. And you don't have anything to make up for that. And that is your reality. So it's important that we pay attention. I think it was Ronald Reagan who used to say, facts are stupid things. <laughs> so you've got to be careful with these facts. Well, now, you get the last word on the Society, uh, American Society on Aging Conference, and then we'll talk with Glenn Hogan. Well, I'm, I'm, Glenn may actually have even more to contribute. Um, but just uh, know that there are, are a lot of dedicated people in this country who care very deeply about these issues, um, and we want you as caregivers to be involved too. Stick with us. You're going to hear a lot about design with dignity and incorporating the needs of the aging. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, we are so pleased you're riding along with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we've been promising a very special guest, Glenn Hogan, who is joining us from Nova Scotia. Uh, He is an expert on the kind of design that incorporates uh, the interests and needs of seniors, designing with dignity, a product and service designer, and also uh, a professor at Nova Scotia 
University out there, uh, way off, hanging off into the East Coast, so uh, into the Atlantic. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Nice to talk with you. Thank you. And as we had said right before we went on the air, one of the things we really want to talk about is how you have adapted uh, what you do to incorporated, incorporating dignity and the needs of seniors as we obviously become a, an aging population. Well, what got you interested in uh, looking at design from that standpoint? Well, originally I got into at least designing for an older uh, population um, probably started about 15 years ago, and I was teaching in Syracuse, New York. And at that time, they had a tr- uh, they had a little bit of a history on something called transgenerational design, and uh, it sort of evolved into universal design. But at that time, I sent my uh, students out, and I think uh, uh, I had them document their grandparents' lives. And from that, we just, uh, from a design perspective, we saw a lot of need. And uh, it sort of evolved from that, and and. Because of uh, just uh, understanding people's situation, at least the students, and I always send my students out to kind of document their grandparents' lives, um, a lot of issues uh, when they were uh, talking to their, their grandkids was around dignity issues about, oh, I wish this was designed better or so undignified using this. Um, so I think that's kind of was the impetus for um, getting on this uh, area. And, and I'll call it, so there's just such a, from a design perspective, uh, because as an industrial designer, I see a someone said there's a lot of products out there for an older population that have that uh, uh, look and smell of a hospital about them. And I didn't think that was such a great, good narrative uh, for a, a very sort of active uh, uh, population group. Well, I can remember seeing an article in Reader's Digest several years ago where students had been asked to redesign pill bottles uh, because all of us who have ever taken any kind of a medication over-the-counter prescription have struggled with some sort of a bottle. Um, And they'd come up with some beautiful designs, easy to open and color-coded. The lids were color-coded for the different medications, so it was very easy to figure out among the prescription medications what was what. And there was a promise at the time that pretty soon this would be the standard. All of us would be getting this wonderfully designed uh, prescription bottles at our local pharmacy, and it never happened. And I've always been very sorry uh, that we still have the same old, you know, looks all of them look alike kind of pill bottles. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think there's a lot of good ideas out there. It's actually getting them into marketing, um, either industry or manufacturers to distribute them into the market. I do know that, um, the, and everyone's going to are talking about the Target Pro Bottle, which actually, um, about 10 years ago, won a lot of awards, and they're beautiful. I now show that as my students of a way to reimagine what a pill bottle would be. And of course, I always tell my students, if you can design it for one segment of the population that might have dexterity issues, everybody wins. So that's that's sort of a classic universal design where it's just um, it's just easier to open for everybody. Um, but the pill bottle is kind of like there is the holy grail of of trying to redesign that experience. And a few years or a couple of years ago, I actually started to look at the pill bottle. But I just started um, um, documenting people how they weren't how they were actually um, managing their medication. And uh, it was interesting, just an interesting insight, because a lot of the solutions, people are, as I call them, are just hacking it or or doing workarounds to to make it better for themselves. And um, so that's sort of my impetus. I don't really know the problems out there, because I'm not experiencing them, at least least for that age group. Um, I just look at what people are doing and ask them questions and learn from them, and uh, and usually there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of uh, really creative ideas of people trying to navigate that, that time of their life and, and make products uh, work better for them. Now, part of the challenge with pill bottles, and I, I take somewhat responsibility years ago, I worked at the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, and we brought you under the Poison Prevention Packaging Act child-proof pill bottles. Uh, which turned out to be adult-proof in many cases as well. But the issue was safety, and it truly worked. There used to be, in in the States, over 100,000 kids poisoned by downing aspirin every year and other medications, and the Poison Prevention Packaging Act reduced those to almost zero. So there was a function that was met and a need that was met, but it doesn't do what, what you talk about, and it doesn't deal yeah. with, with dignity and, and with uh, really a performance that people can adapt to. 
when I've looked at that issue, um, and I actually did some work with the Mayo Clinic a couple of years ago when we went into people's homes, and I was looking at how people are hacking their, uh, uh, I call them product hacking, but how they're doing workarounds. And I just usually would go into someone's home, and usually they say, I've got one, and then they'll identify another. But one of the interesting things was is they were actually doing stuff with their pill bottles, but it wasn't about... Uh, safety issues. It was actually about managing when they, you know, that weekly, uh, that weekly um, thing where they would sit down, usually on a Sunday, and start to put out their weekly uh, pills right. in, in different, uh, you know, the weekly timers. And um, what was interesting is they had, at least when I was looking, they were even starting to develop their own system. And some of them were taking these paper-based systems to show their doctor. And the doctor was saying, oh, thank you for helping me understand the issue or what pills you're actually taking. And because they're not just managing, um, they're managing non-prescription, they're managing prescriptions, so even vitamins and, and, and sort of prescription drugs that they were taking. But those were all their sort of their pill ecosystem. And they were doing some really interesting, interesting things. What was interesting also was that I think there's a little bit of ageism because they're being blamed for non-compliance. Um, and I don't know about you, but I have a really difficult time right now just taking the, the, the my, my vitamin pills that I have. Um, and then, of course, as you get older, you might be, you know, taking a lot more of this cocktail of, of pills. Um, so right now I'm having our time. So I kind of learned from them about uh, what they were doing, and they actually created a little paper-based system and, uh, and actually were managing them quite well. Um, and again, as I said, they took them to the doctors, and they were taking these sheets to their doctors, and the doctors was was thanking them for helping them understand what pills they were taking. So I thought that was again a nice little insight into um, not necessarily that the product wasn't working, but there was a problem in the system. And they said, you know, they they put these pills in the right bottles, they give us all these these different medications, and then they tell us go go home and work it out yourself. They don't help us sort of manage all of this at home of how to get it in the right, um, um, you know, timers and when to take them. Um, so I thought it was a re- interesting critique of their, uh, uh, of their system. And uh, a few years ago, the, the, the Wall Street Journal asked me, what were my 10, um, 10 examples of good uh, product hacking? Because that was the way I was looking at workarounds. All right, hold that thought. That my- hold that thought and tell us in just a minute. For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer with Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Glenn Hogan about product design and services with dignity and adapting to the needs of seniors. And he's got the top 10 list, Glenn's list of the best hacks he's ever seen, seniors adapting products to their needs. And, and again, what was interesting is they left that one out. That was my top hack. And it wasn't a kind of a quirky hack, you know. So one of them was, which I really liked, was soap and a stocking for people to to use in the shower. And it was really, really smart because it, it stretched and it also, you know, the soap would, the soap would get a little bit, uh, um, you know, as it went down, it was much better than kind of the soap on the rope or any of those dispensers that you would have. But the paper-based system was which I thought was really ingenious. And it was interesting they didn't, uh, they didn't put that in. They put nine in, but they left that one out. And that was the one I actually saw all of these, uh, um, um, uh, elderly people, elders, using uh, in their home. Um, so I always thought that was an interesting, um, uh, it was just, it's just interesting that they didn't put that one in. They put the quirky ones in, which we kind of laughed at, that might have some humor, but the one that was really, really creative and actually making the system work better, they didn't put it in. What were some of the others? Well, one was it, was, it was a lot of them were kind of the classic um, uh, 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 one was a, a, a lot of them were using grips, and they were using these foam things to put over different things like toothbrushes and, and cutlery. So a lot of them were around definitely functional issues that were that were happening. Um, one had a, a, a coat hanger with those clips on it, and was actually using them in the kitchen to clip on uh, book or to clip on uh, um, recipes or books that they're in the kitchen and things like that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them were called of these what I called repurposing things that they had found. Um, one has started to put bumps, because as you design a lot of these new, um, at least appliances, such as your dishwasher, don't have any physical buttons. They're all kind of seamless flat buttons, 
where you don't get any tactile information. And they're actually taking these pads, these little uh, um, rubber pads, and putting them all all on these buttons so they could actually feel them. From a design perspective, it really showed me actually what was the most primary important buttons that people need in, in any sort of, uh, of uh, product. So they're using them on their microwaves or appliances and things like that. And it was, I thought it was a really uh, uh, kind of a neat way and also kind of an interesting way as we design things that are very flat and uh, don't give a lot of uh, um, physical feedback when you, when you touch something. This was a way to put sort of that physicality back into products and to, and to environments. Well, you're reminding me of um, the stove that we have at our farm up in Wisconsin, which is the old one, that everything is flat. The buttons are flat. The burners are flat. There's no burners. And it is a, I'm convinced it's a death trap waiting to happen. I, I know yeah. one of these days I'm going to lean onto a hot burner that I can't see um, that's no longer fiery red. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually afraid of this stove, and it's the way it's designed. And I think that's correct. I think we're, we're taking away to, to make them easily cleanable or, or make them look seamless or, or, or uh, a very modern. We're losing a little bit of some of the other uh, physical tactile things that we like in products that would be, uh, feel and things like that. Form over substance. We're going to come right back to you. We're talking with Glenn Hogan, uh, talking about design and ways in which it can be made not only more functional but add dignity to it for seniors. And we're going to find out about the challenge of the commode Coming up in just a minute here on Caregiver SOS on Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. This is a fascinating discussion. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're talking with Glenn Hogan who is with us from Nova Scotia where he hangs out and teaches as well talking about products and service and design uh, with dignity as ageism becomes the catchword across this country. Carol, you had a question. Well, I was thinking about the article I, I read that Glenn wrote. And, Glenn, you were talking about dignity, and your example of something without dignity um, were, were the tennis balls on the end of the walker, where you've got an older person, and we've all seen them. It's got the bright, glowy tennis ball workaround on the bottom of the walker to keep it from skidding or make it taller or whatever it is that they do. Um, and you were saying that that was unattractive and lacked dignity. Yeah, and I think where else do you find tennis balls on the bottom of and really sort of the um, furniture? You probably find them in, in kids, like in elementary schools. So I think there's a little bit of a, a, an ageist narrative about that, and in ageism works both ways. Um, and how many, you know, and I think the idea is it's a smart, easy solution. What's the fix? A tennis ball. What, what's it fixing? The of a tennis ball. Well, what is the fix for? Silly. Sorry. Well, what is the fix for? Why the tennis balls? happened is if you've noticed those and it's those walkers that people want to slide them and you can't slide them now some of the, the, the you can see the, the redesign of the walkers in terms of like the rollator or something where they put wheels on them but i think the issue was that they couldn't slide them they have to kind of lift them up and put them down so that was a way for them to slide on the floor and um again i always think it's, a, it's, it's a, an interesting it's a smart it's a smart hack but I think the narrative I think we need to do much better is that we really just need to design walkers that slide easily. And I've seen some products out there where they've actually taken tennis balls and created it so you could put them on. And I'm thinking, okay, well, let's just go one more better because it's still the narrative of a tennis ball. And I think, you know, as, as my mother, who's in her 80s, you know, I don't know if she would be, uh, um, I don't think that's a narrative of, of who she is, because um, it's a little bit silly looking. And again, you find that narrative with kids on, on, on uh, children's furniture. And I think you do find a lot of even the language of the walker. Where you find that word with, with an older group and a younger group. And I would tell, if you look at walkers for kids, for infants, man, they are really well designed. You get them in all sorts of different cultures, and it's about your ability about how do we enhance your ability, where you look at the walkers for, an, for, for at the other end, they're very badly designed. They have that, again, that whiff of a hospital about them, and they look, they look like they should belong in the hospital and not for someone who may be still fairly active. And it's not really, 
a narrative about their ability. It's about their disabilities. I think we need to do a much better Mm -hmm. job of changing that. And, and I think that you're right in that, you know, a good example of that is the cane versus the walking stick. There are a lot of yeah. seniors now that are using these fancy walking sticks, you know, made of composite materials that go up and down and change height in there for, you know, hiking in the mountains. But you look so much cooler with a walking yeah. stick than you do with a cane. And that narrative associated, even if you, they say that, uh, we call it product, product semiotics, the idea that there's a narrative associated with the products we use. So if you see someone with a cane that is that metal kind of hospital look cane, and you see that same person with a, with another aid that might be a walking stick, like even the language that you're using, and you would interact with those people differently. One's about the disability and one's about their still ability. And they do say that you intera- would interact with them quite differently based on the products that they're associated with. And both of them are aids to help you walk. Talk to us about the commode, which uh, most folks have not enjoyed using. Yeah, and, I, and, and that's an interesting one. That was brought to me by uh, someone in the industry, and he says, you know, the commode's never been really redesigned, or nobody's looked at it. We still have these very, again, again commode or these hospital-looking, uh, basically, uh, and if you're using it at your home, kind of toilet, uh, usually in your bedroom or something like that. So I actually took the, one of these traditional hospital-looking commodes. I took it out to both caregivers and uh, and the senior population and had them help me redesign it. And it was interesting. So from the from the senior population, it was like, you know, I've got this in my room. It's embarrassing for to have. And, you know, I might have my grandkids or my kids over, my friends over. I don't want them to see I've got a toilet sitting at the, at the, the, the bottom of my bed. So you need to mask this. I don't want this to scream, look at me. I, I, can't get a, I can't make it to the toilet in time, so I've got one in my bedroom. So that was their narrative. That was their, they said, just aesthetically, it needs to change. Um, for the caregivers, they were saying, um, it was really, it was interesting. And I never thought of it. They said, you know what, it, it's this bucket in there. It's basically a slop bucket. And I'm going in with my clients, and they were looking after someone, so these professional caregivers. And I'm carrying and it was literally a slop bucket that they were having to walk down the hallway and clean. And they said, you know, it just, it's hard to keep a, my face, you know, I, I, when I'm carrying it, you can, they can see it in my face. We're all embarrassed. And I have to clean this. Can you make it so it's easily cleanable? So, again, from two different perspectives, and they both have needs um, around it because usually the caregiver is, is kind of uh, clean. It's a big issue for them. So from that perspective, you start to then look at, okay, what can solutions be for a commode? What does it have to look like? Well, it has to be easily cleanable, but it has to look like something that might be, uh, when it's not being used, mostly during the day, that it looks like it could fit into my bedroom environment or somewhere, and it wouldn't scream, look at me, I'm a toilet in your room. So I think it was, a, uh, again, it was a great insight from people. And again, as a designer, I just talk to people and, and, and find out what do they need. And is that now being manufactured, the Blue Zone, your company design? No, I'm starting to design someone's interested in them. Um, I'm at the point where I've just sort of got, I've got about six or seven products, and all of them um, mostly around the bathroom environment. And it was literally, so I had some funding for it. It was literally, I don't, when I got the funding, I said, well, it's all been done before. And then I started just going out to both seniors and caregivers and going, what are the needs in the bathroom environment that are really important for you? And out of that came some product ideas, and then I would take them back to them. And it was almost, I always felt it was a kind of a co-design experience because, again, I don't really know the issues. I'm not experiencing it in, in both as a caregiver and as, as someone using uh, um, needing that type of product. So again, if if you listen to people and design around their needs, and then of course, as from a design perspective, you have to make it well. Can it be manufactured and things like that? Um, but again, people are really interested in changing the narrative of some of these assistive aid products. That they said, uh, you know, it's in my home. It needs to fit in my home now. And as we as healthcare is aging and as, as they're getting people out to age in place, and we want people to age in their home as opposed to aging in a in in in, in other facilities, um, a lot of these aids that are going to the home need to really fit into the lifestyle of these people. And I think they're also getting a huge demographic change. I'm, I'm, I tell my students that you know you're designing for the very very top end of the baby boomers, and you've got Mick Jagger who's what 75, 76, and 
what that's quite a different generation also than than my mother who's a generation in her in mid 80s all right wait a minute we but need we, to hit uh, carol with an automatic electronic defibrillator she just passed out in her chair mick jagger is what well he is in his 70s uh, i don't think he's is he 76 now my goodness i have to look this yeah. up <laughs> I'm just I'm picturing Mick Jagger's house and him being so, I don't know that was so, so wow poor Carol <laughs> yeah, I think they were born in their early forties weren't they or something like yeah, that well I was born in forty two I'll be seventy five May third and I think Mick yeah. and I are about the same age I don't shake yeah, the way he still shakes yeah but you are that generation right and your generation is quite different than your parents or the generation before you in terms of who you are right and sort of your health. And you are a generation that grew up with rock and roll and are also wanting products that don't have that. You don't want your that old person product. You want a product that reflects who you are as still a vital, active person. And um, that community for design. And you're, not, you're slowly seeing a little bit of those products, but, but uh, um, uh, not enough of them for, for you to have a... Uh, and enough that you need them. <laughs> Uh, Mick Jagger was born in uh, 43, so he'll be uh, 74. 74, so you were really close. He'll be 74 in July. Really close. Well, uh, you know, I would say designing for you, you know, for, for who you are as, as someone who grew up in a certain time um, and has certain expectations, and I think your expectations for the, the environment that you want to age in is quite different in terms of what products you want to be associated with and how and how they look and how they reflect who you are. Well, you know, I think that's interesting because if if you if everybody designed old person's products with Mick Jagger in mind, it would be they would look so totally different. Be cool. I mean, that, that would be so fascinating. <laughs> um, but you know, my sister uh, is a you know certified interior designer and, and specialized in mm-hmm. kitchen baths for years, and she was working um, in St. Louis, I think, outside of St. Louis for a big firm. And, and and this was not unusual back, you know, 20 years ago with universal design coming out and there were codes for universal design and new construction. But you you could not do universal design a certain amount in new construction if you paid a fine. And her company hated universal design, never wanted to include grab bars or, or any of the things that you would do to make something accessible. They preferred just to pay the fine wow. because they said it was ugly. So my yeah. question, my question to you, Glenn, is: Do you think that's changing? Um, are these little tools and design things that help everyone? Um, do you think they're becoming better looking and more accepted? Well, I think you can probably look at the walker, and I, there's a. I'm not sure if you have them down the the rollator. So you're getting a lot of these, which are, are these kind of walkers with wheels on them that, that come in different colors. That's different thing. Um, I, I do think you're right, because it is people saying, I don't want these lab bars is what you need, but to having them in, because they are ugly. Um, so the question for design is, well, how can you make them functionally and uh, look good? Because we want people to adopt this, because it's very, um, the they're great to have, right? So um, I think they are identifying the problem, that aesthetically, uh, that and, and that's always been the problem of our sick of age, is functionally they work, but aesthetically they don't fit. And I think that's the sweet spot where you, if you can design these products, that functionally they have to work. I mean, you understand that. But aesthetically they have to fit into who this person is. So if it's going into a bathroom, then make it look like it belongs there and that it, that it doesn't scream out. Um, um, it is just a bar that anybody would want to put in the bathroom because it helps you navigate and get up and down and, and, and uh, um, um, navigate in a very slippy environment. Got to stop you right there. We are flat out of time. We really do appreciate okay. you coming on with us. Is there a website people can check you out? Um, I, I'm getting my blue zone stuff off, so I don't have it right now. There is, um, you can probably look for some of my stuff on, on at least on my NASCAD site. We'll give you links into uh, some of the, the areas and my 
Okay. I'm, I'm looking at. Or just Google Glenn Hogan and it'll all come up. Hey, Glenn, got to yeah, stop H- you. Thank you. I really Glenn appreciate Hogan, it. Hogan is an unusual word, and uh, there's not a lot of Glenn. There's no Glenn Hogan out there, H O U G A N, so that's an easy Google. Oh, cool. Googling. All right. Take care. Thanks. Okay. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye. For, for Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Up next, are you ready? Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. This is Sam Donaldson. 50 years in the news business taught me that each day brings a new story. Retirement is just the beginning of a lifelong adventure if we keep learning, stay active, and give back. All secrets to healthy aging. That's what Oasis is about. Explore our history. Take a fitness class. Tutor a child. It's your time to try something new at Oasis. Call 210-236-5954 or oasisnet.org forward slash San Antonio. I like that bumper music. That's nice. You're listening to Take 10, which comes to you at the end of every Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernil, and we are joined, as we are always joined, by Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known expert on a whole lot of things like addictions, like caregiving, a psychologist and a man who has spent a whole lot of time dealing with the kind of issues we're talking about. And Jamie, thanks for coming with us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love this show. Well, we're going to start this one a little differently. Carol has a quote she is going to throw out, and I want you to react to it. All right, Jamie, here's the quote of the day. Sounds. Like, I feel like I'm on a game show. This is good. All right, here's the quote. Who said this? No. Um, logical arguments often fail to convince the people we have emotional relationships with. Sounds like the plight of every caregiver dealing with family out of town. So, so we're Mr. Spock, and we're having these logical arguments that make perfect sense, but the people with whom we have an emotional relationship don't believe a word we say. Well, you know Carol and Ron. I think I've talked to you both about my own family, my own immediate family. God rest my mother's soul. She was probably the best psychologist I've, I've ever seen. I've, I'm definitely a, a testimonial to that, both as her son, who she helped save my life, but more importantly, too, um, from the patients I, ha- I got after she passed away. And I saw how brilliant she was behind that very confidential room. My sister, who's a licensed social worker up in North Carolina, specializes in senior care, is also unbelievable. She's much better than I am as a, as a geriatric social worker and, and is packed all the time. And then, of course, you have me, for whatever it's worth. I think Ron's uh, introduction as being something, a master of, of, what is it, jack of all trades, master of none of some sort? Is that what your intro is? Ron? No, I said you're oh. very good at some things. Yeah, he said some things yeah. you're good at. Yeah. I'm, I'm only picking <laughs> on you. But here's the deal. My mother, Dan Retrosol, my sister and I, when we had a problem, you know, both if you add the academic um uh, skill set of us. We have about 90 to 120 years of experience. And if something happened in our family, you've often heard me say this, we became Mo, Larry, and Curly. Golly, who are those guys? Ha yeah. no, I know. Three, three Stooges. stooges. <laughs> and for, yeah, for your millennials that are listening. Yeah, just um, in case. Right. Yes. Yeah, but here's the deal. I don't care how logical it was for me or for my mom or for my sister. There was anxiety. There was kind of fear, there was intrepidation, there was suspicion about the other person's advice, and and somehow or another, 
it never sank in. So we were like rendered helpless. So if that was going on in our household, can you imagine what happens in households with caregivers and carries around the country? Well, that's the old line, the shoemaker's kids never have shoes. Exactly. It's, it's exactly that line. And uh, I, I am the walking testimonial of that. I, I just remember all those kind of things that we had when my sister had a child and she was rearing her or I was in trouble because I was an oppositional kid or my mom was being divorced. And we were all going to town giving our best logical explanations and how we could assist the other person. And somehow they shut down. And I do believe that the messenger does matter here. So you're saying that if you have an emotional attachment, maybe you are not, you as a group aren't, the, your group thinks not going to work or you're not the, you need to have somebody else being the messenger? Absolutely, Carol. I think this is why we, we ask our caregivers to always get a third party engaged. I think that when we emotionally get engaged with our loved ones over these very emotional issues of mom, dad, brother, sister, whomever we're caregiving about, I think all bets are off. Certainly all logic gets shut down. And what we do, we actually see, let's say, the clinical uh, in front of us. Let's say we see the brother from when he was a child. We see mom when she was our mom and we were a kid. Somehow or another, it's very confusing emotionally for us to be able to be the messenger. And that's why you need a third party who can actually take it all in, assess the situation, and make strong plans from a third party perspective. So on past shows, we have talked about geriatric social workers. You mentioned your sister. But we've also talked about mediators, like elder care mediators, and we recently did a show about uh, the field of mediation. What would be the difference between a social worker and a mediator? Well, you know, that's a great, great topic for us. I'm sure there will be a whole show, too. We should invite those professions on. Um, you and Ron will do great service by them. But a mediator is really skilled more in actually the legalese, if you will, of conflict resolution. Um, if, if you did want to avoid, let's say, court, and you were in the middle of a divorce proceeding that, that you knew could possibly be handled by somebody who, <clears throat> and it wasn't that cantankerous, okay, it was like divorce without war, you go to a mediator, you go to somebody who could sit down with you, save you all the time and effort that it takes in the court system, and they had had the skill set to be able to hopefully resolve, and all parties would walk away okay and happy. A geriatric social worker is truly a clinician with a geriatric background, uh, has a gerontological perspective, has studied for years and years on needs and, uh, of seniors and, and, and the end of boomers, of course, and they approach the clinical situation that way, whether it's cognitive behavioral, whether it's you know, rational motor therapy, they will choose their modality, but it's still a clinician with a geriatric background. So if let's say that we're in a family that's really, everybody's really angry, everyone is at each other's throats, um, and maybe it's on whether to put mom in the nursing home or not, would you call on a social worker or a mediator in that situation? You know, that's an interesting one. I would actually call on the social worker first to sort, the, if you will, the issues out to be able to really clinically address the family and to get the strengths and the weaknesses and to uncover all these clinical dynamics. And at some point, as an ethical social worker, I would then refer them once I had understood it, once we had kind of pared it down to an understandable level and it wasn't just chaos, I would then refer them out to a mediator. All right. So my next question is, let's say... We recognize. Let's say that we're on the on the other end of the spectrum functionally. You know, we're 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 a pretty bright family. We're just you know kind of flummoxed by the particular situation. Is there a way for us to address the emotional issues we're hearing from our parents or the person we're caring from or from our brother or sister who, with whom we're arguing? Is there a way to address that those emotional issues um, and work that out ourselves? Issues yeah. like? I mean, I mean, to come at it from recognizing, oh, I hear mom worried about losing her independence. Oh, I hear my sister's thinking that we're going to have to sell the house when we put mom in the nursing home. 
um, and she's not going to inherit that money, and she really needs it. She's a single parent, and, and they you know, always we, and we're the off house. to the races. Yeah, so there are emotional issues they're bringing to the table. Is there a way for us to, you know, just within our own families to try to step back and, and come at it, not think about it logically, but think about what are the emotional, what is it that I'm hearing them worried about? Well, clinically, I believe this is a wonderful opportunity for caregiving. If we really look at caregiving, obviously the, see the difficult challenges that, that come with the role, we also have to look at some of the transforma- the transformational sort of things that can occur. So what you're describing to me is that when I'm in the middle of this and trying to understand mom or dad or whomever I'm taking care of, it brings stuff up in me. It's clinically triggering me. There's pieces of me that are feeling you know, that cognitive dissonance, something doesn't feel totally right. And I think that's a wonderful, as I say, transformational opportunity to get in touch with ourselves, to go into therapy, to see what it's doing inside of us, to allow that clarity to come to us. I remember when I, my father and I were in the business together, and there were so many issues that were swirling around us, and I knew I'd never change him. You know, he came from the Holocaust, he wasn't wild about mental health uh, professionals, and so I had to go into therapy and find out that I was not too dissimilar from him. And I was able to now kind of come back and deal with my dad in a whole different way. What was the business you were in? <laughs> we were in real estate. We were brokers up in North Carolina prior to me being a social worker, Ron. Really? Yes, we were. We would actually develop land up in Boone and Blowing Rock. Ah. But it was a family business, and all I can flat out tell you is avoid family businesses at all costs. <laughs> That's right. You thought, you thought conflict and caregiving was bad. Try running a business. we got about a minute left. Last thoughts here on Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air. Last thoughts, Dr. Jamie. Well, Carol, just like the, I just described the situation of, fam- of families going into business together, I was referred to a lot of patients uh, because of this experience who had family businesses. So, again, to your point, the messenger matters, and the messenger often gets killed even if it's our family member. These emotions are huge. They run rampant, and they're awesome. So go out and get yourself a third party, no matter what you do. What do you think? I, I would absolutely agree. I, I don't think you can um, overestimate the help of someone outside of your family to help everybody listen and talk and, and air out the issues. Take 10 comes to you at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air shows. We'll be back with you again next week. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on-air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer for Carol Zernial and Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron. We will talk with you soon. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on-air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.